Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. As I listen to other podcasts, I realize lots of podcast hosts do long introductions and that's appropriate and often very helpful for the podcast, but I kind of try to get right to the guests and get them to share their stories with you because I think that's why you're here is to hear these brave guests that come forward, some of my heroes, and share their stories. And the guest on today's podcast is my friend, Tate LeBaron. Welcome to the podcast, Tate. Thanks. Happy to be here. Um, I'm in Salt Lake County. Tate is driven here from Utah County, so we're face-to-face. I became aware of Tate because somebody tagged me in his Facebook post, which is somehow I become aware of people. I think it was my friend, Dallin Steele, that read it and tagged me. Then I read the post and reached out to Tate and asked him if he'd be willing to be on the podcast to basically share his Facebook post. But before we get to the post, let me just introduce Tate. Tate's an active member of the LDS Church, a returned missionary from Quito, Ecuador. He's married in his late 20s. He has three beautiful children. His wife's name is Autumn, I believe. Yeah, that's great. And we'll hear more about her through, she's not here with us. She's probably home with the kids, but we'll hear about her in this Facebook post. But Tate is going to talk about just his journey um, with um, difficult issues that he's worked through. Um, But those difficult issues led him to um, be very close to suicide. And he bravely talks about this in the Facebook post. And he talks about his journey with pornography, his journey not being comfortable in his physical body, and just this kind of whirlwind of things that came into his life that led him to falsely conclude, but it was the reality of how he felt that everybody would be better off with Tate gone. And um, uh, when I read, see a Facebook post like this, it's, I usually invite the guests just to read the post. So um, welcome to Facebook. Um, and we're just going to have Tate read this post. I think it'll take 10 or 15 minutes. And then we'll talk about the things he shared. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Tate. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to start out here. Um, so when I had written this, it was on May 4th. Tomorrow is May 5th or Cinco de Mayo, the best day to get tacos. And it's also my beautiful wife's birthday. Autumn has been one of the most amazing people in my life. We've been blessed with three beautiful children and have been and have blessed that have blessed both Autumn and I. And four years ago tomorrow marks the moment I almost gave it all up. I almost gave up my wife, my two-year-old son, Kaiser, who was our miracle child. I almost also gave up getting to meet our second son that my wife was pregnant with. I almost gave up getting to experience the birth and life, as I said, of my second son, Jackson, as well as my sweet baby girl, Avery. Tomorrow marks four years since the day I almost took my own life. I was so convinced that I was worthless, that Adam didn't love me, and that she would be better off with someone else, that my son needed to have a a better father, and that no one would even care if I slipped away. The beginning of seventh grade is when I started to have extremely low self-esteem that I came to hate myself and the way my body looked. I was always, I always was a thinner person who like many skinny people was verbally abused and teased because of my size. I was called toothpick, chicken legs, and also was told if I went outside, I would blow away. Sometimes I actually wished for that. Looking back, I don't think people realize and probably still don't realize how harmful it is for someone 
a young man, from my viewpoint, to be called skinny. So we were all taught to never call someone fat, but what about calling someone skinny? When people called me skinny, it was damaging because what that meant to me was, you aren't strong enough. You aren't good enough. Why would anyone want to be with you? Along with many more. I, all, I allowed these thoughts to stay because I believed they were true. I would try to show my peers in different ways that I could be strong by doing multiple pull-ups. But even then I was told, uh, you could only perform those strength tests because you were skinny and, no, and didn't have any body weight to lift or pull up. This led me to believing that physically I would never be enough for anyone. I want to emphasize that my parents, especially my mom, always told me that I was enough, that I was handsome, and that I wasn't as skinny as I thought I was. Unfortunately, as a teenager, you trust the opinions of those that don't care about you rather than the opinions of those that love you most. I didn't want people to think they got to me or that they won by showing the shattered emotions I felt of not being enough. I wanted to feel the sense of belonging or being good enough. So instead of showing my pain, I made sure to be as happy or at least appear to be as happy as I could. So fast forward to my first year in college, right after high school. I was dating a girl who was the first girl I had ever dated. At the time, I didn't realize this, but it would end up being one of the most toxic relationships I would ever be in. My skinny stature was emphasized, and there were moments as moments we would be with a group of other people where my girlfriend would stout would state out loud in front of everybody with me being right there. Man, if I wasn't dating Tate, I would totally be dating so-and-so. The worst part is that the other guy whose name she would state would be right there in the exact same room. And all I would be able to feel was I'm not good enough. And why is she even dating me if she doesn't even want to be with me? Those moments created a very toxic emotion of shame and nothingness. I would think to myself, well, Tate, no wonder no one in high school wanted to date you. Your own girlfriend doesn't even want you. Whether or not that statement was actually true, I don't know. But it didn't matter because I believed it. I just hoped things would get better. But they would soon take another bad turn. One night in my apartment room, this girlfriend of mine came into my room and told me she wanted to talk. She sat down and handed me my phone. I was, I was confused as to why she even had had my phone in the first place and said, I read what you sent to your bishop. She continued, I didn't know what to do, so I told a close friend what I read in your text. And in that text, it was me having to tell my bishop that I had used my roommate's computer to look at pornography. And he had asked me to tell him when I talked to my roommate and had told him that I had done that. So my girlfriend, as I stated, she had gone, she had read that text and everything up to that point. And so she went and she talked to a friend and he told, and then he told her that I should break up with you and to not have anything to do with someone like you. And all I can think is, wait a minute, someone like me? What does that even mean? 
When I was nine years old, I was exposed to a pornographic magazine in which every single day of my life that I had never seen it. It cankered my mind the moment I saw it, but I didn't know how to get the images out of my mind. My nine-year-old brain didn't understand what it was feeling or why it created such a strong pull to keep looking at it. My parents didn't come to know about this until I was 12 years old when they, when they had to take their computer in to be fixed and found it was full of viruses, viruses that came from pornographic websites. The night my dad decided to talk to me was when we were at my grandma's house. It was in the evening and he had asked me if I wanted to go on a drive with him. Needless to say, my entire body instantly was consumed with fear because I knew in that moment that my parents knew. I did everything in my power to not go by saying I didn't want to go, but was thankful he thought of me. Fortunately for me, though, my dad won. It was a very sombering and difficult conversation to have with my dad because of how ashamed I felt. Even though my dad told me he would help me, and I'm sure felt overwhelmed as to what he should even say or really do. But in that moment, I allowed my mind to create a toxic shame that stamped my mind that I was a bad person and that I disappointed my parents. Now, back to my college days. He told me that I should break up with you and to not have anything to do with someone like you. After she said this, she got up and walked out. No chance for me to even talk. Rather, I was instantly categorized as a disgusting, low-life porn addict. Who cared that I later was told by my therapist that trying to break a porn addiction is compared to someone trying to overcome a heroin addiction? People assume that no one can just walk away from porn and think, why do you keep looking at something that is so terrible and demoralizing? I know they thought this because I was asked this multiple times in my life. Pornography is something people don't talk about. Why is that? Is it because we don't understand it? That we think anyone who views it should just be able to cold turkey quit? But it's understandable for an alcoholic or heroin addict to relapse no matter how disheartening it is. However, however it's looked at, this moment would create another dark and entrenched moment of toxic shame. But this time, my depression said, no one will ever want to marry a person like you. You are not enough spiritually. And guess what? I believed it. Now, fast forward to May 5th, 2017. Due to several different circumstances at this time during mine and Autumn's marriage, my depression and, and addiction were a hurricane and a tornado meshed together. I was tired of hurting the woman I loved through the constant relapses in my addiction, which led to greater depression and anxiety, and they fed off of each other. It was, it was six feet below rock bottom for me. My job at the time required me to drive to multiple different job sites throughout the day and for most, and for most part worked alone. The morning of May 5th, Autumn and I had gotten into a heavy fight and I left to work angry and miserable. The darkness of depression was getting heavier and heavier and felt I couldn't carry it anymore. It was time to go. My depression told me I had nothing to live for. Autumn was better off without me. Autumn would be able to finally be freed from having a husband that was like me. She could remarry and have a better life. 
Kazer would be able to have a new father that wasn't like me, a skinny, pathetic porn addict. The lies were pouring in and drowning out any source of light in my mind. The saddest thing to me is that I cried out loud in my car. I don't want to die. You have to die. No one will miss you. If you truly want Autumn to be happy, you need to die. I wanted to be with Autumn forever. We'd been working so hard. I'd been working with my bishop. I was going to individual counseling, trauma therapy, counseling, couples counseling, and group counseling. I thought to myself, I think I can do this. You don't matter to anyone. No one wants you. I finally gave up. I believed I had no worth. I was so scared. I cried out loud, stating again that I didn't want to die. I wanted to see Kaiser grow up. But again, the thought, you have no worth, came to my mind. I was trembling in my car as I wrote my suicide note, telling people I was sorry for being such a burden and for making their lives miserable. I knew that they would be happier and freed from all the pains I put on Autumn, Kaiser, and my parents. Then I thought to myself, I should at least tell my mom goodbye. Let her have one last conversation with me before I leave and to let her know how much I loved her. My soul was screaming for help. I called my mom. She picked up the phone and asked how I was doing. I simply told her that I was fine, but things were going to get better and that I loved and missed her. She, as I believe all mothers know, could tell something was wrong. She asked me, Tate, what's wrong? I assured her that I was fine. When someone who is suicidal states that they are fine, as I did, deep down I wanted to say, I am in pain. I am alone. I need your help. Depression and suicidal thoughts suppress the victim, such as myself, into thinking no one cares and that it's better I don't talk. She pushed and pushed me to tell her what was going on. I believed a little bit inside of me that didn't want to die told her that I wasn't okay. I broke down and I told her I wanted to talk to her one last time before I was six feet underground. She instantly told me, Tate, don't you dare hang up the phone. In that moment, I felt, a, I felt a freedom that maybe I didn't have to take my life. She told me that I needed to go home and talk to Autumn and that she would not hang up until I was home. When I got home, I felt so ashamed and so broken that I walked into our apartment and just dropped my suicide note in front of Autumn. Earlier that day, we had had a heavy fight and we hadn't yet made amends. I had hung up the phone with my mom prior to dropping my note in front of Autumn and had walked away out to my car. Autumn came out with tears running down her face, asking me why I would ever think about leaving her in Kaiser. I didn't know how to answer her because my mind was so polluted, I couldn't even process it myself. She told me that she hated her birthday and asked me why I would ever think about taking my life. I honestly only remember this small conversation and the image of Autumn with tears running down her face and the utter heartbreak I felt in that moment. While writing this, I had to talk with Autumn to try and even remember exactly what happened. Turns out, both of our brains decided they didn't want to remember, and I didn't want to prod Autumn about it further. I am forever grateful to God and Jesus Christ for putting people in my, in my life who helped me in the darkest, most hellish days, such as my beautiful wife, my three children, my amazing parents, 
all of the bishops that have and continue to help me on my journey of repairing my brain as I fight the battles of addiction and sobriety. I lastly want to thank my addiction recovery therapist, especially Dr. Corey Holmgren, who passed away that got me through the hardest stages of my addiction and depression. Unfortunately, as many addicts know, it is a lifelong fight, but it gets easier every day. But there will still be days you get checked and realize you can't do this alone. Having loved ones around you to support and help you is key. There is no shame in asking for help. And unfortunately, pornography addiction and suicide are, in my opinion, two of the hardest things to talk about and to ask help for. When you ask someone if they are okay, we naturally say, I'm good or I'm fine. Unfortunately, I'm fine can really mean I'm not okay. I'm hurting. I want help, but don't feel I deserve it. That's what it meant for me and for many others that I have talked with. I'm not a therapist, nor do I claim to be one, but I can help give some guidance if you feel lost, alone, or that you believe the lies that flood your mind that you aren't good enough. But guess what? You are enough. You are loved. God loves you. You matter more than you know. God gave me these challenges, not just to overcome them and to learn from them, but also, and maybe more importantly, to help others that are struggling with these challenges. I have a deep love for people and in making sure each person knows and feels loved by those around them. If you are struggling and don't know who to turn to, you can turn to me. I can help you to get the courage to talk with those you love to get the help you need. Now, I know that there are some of you who are struggling and have already told yourself that you don't matter and that this love and help doesn't apply to you, and that you deserve to be in pain. Well, guess what? You don't. You deserve to have help and to feel loved. You matter, and you are worth it. I hope to help create awareness and to help others know that there is hope. I've wanted to start a podcast about suicide prevention where I would bring on other survivors, as I would like to call them, and myself to share their stories and provide a place where parents can ask questions to help as well as for those suffering can get started on their path of recovery. It's great. Tate, tell our listeners what's on that. You posted a picture of yourself on this post. Tell our listeners what's written on that picture. Yeah. So this is a uh, shirt, um, that, uh, states on an empathy only club. Um, I wish I could remember the exact name of the company, but it's uh, Sawyer Norman, who is the one that uh, created this company, a friend of mine, um, and it just spoke volumes to me. Um, listeners, we will um, link to Tate's um, Facebook posts in the podcast description so you can read it yourself if you want to reread that and not transcribe the podcast. Um, Tate, how do people find you? They can find you by linking to that Facebook post, but how do people find you if they want to talk to you? Yeah, so I actually also had created an email. Um, it's called wavesofawareness at outlook.com. That's great. So wavesofawareness at outlook.com. We'll also put that in the podcast description. On behalf of all of our listeners, thanks for your courage to just be on the podcast and share that story and make the Facebook post in the first place. And as I reread that today. I'm rereading it in, in June, roughly a month after. Um, the post is awesome, but the comments are awesome. There's 216 comments, 36 shares. 
um, hundreds and hundreds of likes. And I just recognize that a lot of people, um, tell, tell our listeners before we get into some of the things, why did you, why would you post something like this public? Well, it's actually been something that I've, I've wanted to post for, you know, a good little while, but every time that I've wanted to post in the past, it just didn't really seem like the timing or probably anxiety or, you know, what people may, may think of me. Um, and it was, I, I originally had thought that this was the five-year mark, um, from when I had, uh, plan to take my own life, but ended up being four. So, um, but that was a big reason is, you know, I felt like I was in a, you know, a good space and, you know, really wanted to, to share that with other people. And I think it's great to share. We, we create authentic connections, more vulnerable and honest, and you're leading on that. Talk about your wife. Was she okay with you sharing this? And if so, I mean, she's not here, but I don't know if you want to share with our listeners how she feels about you being public about this kind of messy part of your marriage. Yeah. So she, as I've stated, she's my rock. She, um, always tells me she supports, supports me with, you know, all the different things that I want to do. And this was something that she was okay with. Um, cause obviously, you know, part of her life, as you said, is entangled in this mess, um, or darkest parts of my life. And, you know, I, I know for her and I had asked her like, Oh, like, would you ever want to, you know, share your story? And something that I know that she said is, Tate, I, I have a hard time wanting to share that because I don't want it to hurt you. And, you know, because of the way that I, I did treat her, unfortunately, during the darkest points of my life with, you know, my, uh, addiction and, and depression. And so, um, you know, I, I know that she's supportive and at some point I, I do hope that she will share what her side of the story. And I think it's a, it's good that she's recognizing it's good for you to share their story and, and she doesn't, it's not shameful for her. Um, and I honor you that you recognize this caused her a lot of pain and, um, sharing that might, she's protecting you in some way. Um, listeners, we've done a podcast with Savannah and Hayden Paul. They've started a podcast, but Hayden Paul's like Tate and some of the other great guests we've had that have worked through pornography or working on pornography. And, and sometimes hearing the girlfriends or the spouses talk about this is helpful for um, the girlfriends or the spouses that don't have a pornography use situation in their life that are helping somebody. And I'm sensitive that sometimes it's reversed, that it's the woman that's um, working to solve pornography and the man in the relationship that does not have a pornography. We we want to not create more shame with women that have this challenge because more men are stepping forward. As a singles ward bishop, I did meet with women that were working to resolve pornography. And in some ways, I um, double respected. That's not a real word, but I just had so much respect and um, for these women that bravely stepped forward and talk to the, I'm a male, bishops are all male, so there's kind of even an awkwardness about a woman talking to a man. Um, so I want to talk about, um, and this is for listeners where Tate and I said a prayer before we started, that I would ask questions now that would be helpful for you as a listener that Tate has answers to. I want to go back to suicide, um, just because my feeling is there's listeners right now that are suicidal. 
and uh, are in a really dark place. And you've, and in the post, you gave them a lot of thoughts. But what would you, what would you, if you could make a phone call to yourself that day? You made a phone call to your mom. If you could make a phone call to your older self, that self right now, this is, what would you say to yourself? I'd probably tell myself to not be so hard on myself. Um, for myself, I am a perfectionist and I just felt like I always needed to be perfect and appear to be perfect. Um, and probably told myself as well to just love myself, love who I am and understand that, you know, and it may sound cliche, but you know, God made me the way that I am. And so I should love myself, but I think as we can learn to love and appreciate the imperfections that we have, you know, we're better able to appreciate ourselves and, you know, to gain, you know, greater respect for ourselves and to allow, at least for me, allow people that told me that I was worth it to let that sink in to my mind because so many times I just let it, you know, just, it came in one ear and went out the other. And sometimes it didn't even come in because I allowed myself to believe my own lies. And so to definitely tell myself just to listen to what other people have to say. How do you learn to not believe these lies? Cause you did a good job of, of saying that the lies you were hearing you were more believable to you than the people that loved you at times. And you um, sort of concluded that, um, and you concluded at the same time that everybody would be better off without you, which you knew on some level was not true, but maybe you didn't. So just talk about how you, if you get all those negative thoughts in your head, what what work you did to get those out of your head? Um, so there's a lot that I had ended up doing. I had to do... Um, different types of counseling um, that honestly, you know, I think a lot of times maybe people think maybe in my age, uh, I'm not, you know, super old, but at least growing up, it was the mentality of, oh man, if you go to a therapist, you know, something's really wrong with you. But in reality, we all have, you know, different things that are, you know, hard um, or challenges. Um, but really going to my counselor, and um, doing a trauma therapy, which is called lifespan integration, which basically untangles um, moments in your life that are traumatic or that have become uh, toxic, like different forms of toxic shame and untangling that and realizing, okay, yeah, this specific traumatic experience happened at this point in my life um, and getting that professional help. Um, secondly, um, the bishops that helped me, but one specifically, um, hopefully he doesn't mind sharing his name, but Dallin Miner. Um, he actually, what he would do with me is when I would meet with him, he would look at me in the eyes and say, Tate, are you listening? And I'd say, yes, I'm listening. <laughs> and he would um, basically tell me, like, are you going to be able to take in what I'm going to tell you? 
And I'd say, I'm going to try. He said, okay. And he would sit me down and he would, you know, tell me, Tate, you are great. You are loved. Your wife loves you. And to really just have a, a flood of positive reinforcement, positive um, things about me that I'll be honest, like the first little while it was, I, I enjoyed hearing it, but it didn't sink in until after hearing it multiple times. And he knew about your pornography use. Yes, he did. Yeah. So he's making informed comments about you. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. And so having that, you know, religious or, you know, whatever somebody else may need of a, you know, mentor or whoever that may be that you can trust to talk to about and, or a spouse and, you know, helping them to realize that having those positive affirmations is extremely important. Um, even though it, I know for myself made me feel uncomfortable because I didn't like to have that type of attention and because I didn't believe it, but with time it helped to actually sink the positivity into my mind. What a simple thing he did. What a powerful thing he did. That's not in any training I think he went to. Um, I think that just came naturally for him would be my guess. But I, I share that listeners because that's not a complicated thing that Bishop Minor did. Um, and he knew, I mean, he wasn't excusing the pornography. He wasn't saying, you know, you were working with him concurrent with that to overcome this, but he helped you feel like you were worthy of the atonement and worthy of God's love because the way he treated you, that maybe you felt I'm worthy of that too, the way he's treating me and my heavenly parents may feel the same way since he's a person in authority. Yeah. You said some cool vocabulary in there. I hope you realize you're a gifted writer and a gifted communicator. You talked about untangling the trauma and the toxic shame. Will you talk about some of the trauma that maybe the therapist helped you untangle? And maybe it was some of the stuff you wrote in the Facebook post. Yeah. So um, one of the things I I actually didn't put in the post, but when I had lived in, uh, so I grew up in Nephi. And, you know, in about seventh grade, that's about when, you know, kind of like the bullying started. And um, it was probably one of the biggest defining moments of toxic shame um, or, you know, that allowed a lot of uh, self self uh, worthiness or, you know, self-esteem to really plummet. Um, it was when, you know, I was just in a, in a classroom. I already knew that I was moving uh, to Kaysville. Most of my peers knew I was, um, you know, my childhood was, was amazing, you know, but unfortunately in seventh grade, like, as I mentioned, just had a plummet. And, uh, I remember, um, talking with a group of guys that I, I wanted to, to feel involved with. I always wanted to, to feel that. And, um, they were telling, asking me, oh, well, who, who is it that you like? And, um, like, who do you have a crush on? And, you know, I, I had told them, um, but then they told me, oh, you should write on the back of, of a notebook. And so I did. I put, I love, you know, X person. And um, I, you know, put it back down so nobody could see it. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, but then I actually had to leave to go to the bathroom. And then when I came back, unfortunately, I came back to it being flipped over and walked in. And literally the whole classroom just looked at me. And a lot of people laughed at me and teased me. And, um and honestly, for me, it, you know, a particular person had then 
uh, talked to the girl that I liked and said, Hey, would you be my girlfriend? Wow. And she said, well, I know you're just messing around. So no, but if you weren't, I would. And then they, you know, led to taunt me again of just ask her, just, you know, ask her to be your girlfriend. She wants to be your girlfriend or this or that. And, you know, at that point I was like, I don't want anything to do with any of you. And that was probably one of the first times that I wished that I wasn't alive. Just didn't want to be there. It sounds, you know, as a, as an adult, maybe a little silly, but you know, for me, that was a piece of trauma that I had to, um, face and to actually deal with and, you know, put that trauma into a, in a safe place as they call it in this trauma therapy that I was working on. I like you sharing that. And I, I like that you said as an adult, you sort of almost, it's sort of like, it's hard to communicate the pain you felt in the seventh grade as your 29 year old self. And I've learned to validate pain and validate, not have you prove, well, you were overthinking that or you were too, you were too sensitive and you shouldn't have seen it that way. Listeners, you've heard me say this. I've just learned to sit with people in their pain and not have them prove it and just take it on face value. That was tremendously traumatic experience for you. And the fact that you can remember so much about it and, uh, and, and have the courage to talk about it. Um, what, what did the therapist do? You've talked about putting this in a trauma box. I think you said that phrase. And mm. this is you just helping others that may not have access to a therapist or may not need a therapist, just have some of this in their life. What did you? What did the therapist help you do to move on from that experience? And was part of it just identifying how painful it was? Yeah, so as I mentioned, it's uh, called lifespan integration. And what I actually had to do, and, you know, this can be a very um, triggering and traumatic thing to do, but what I had to do, I was creating an Excel spreadsheet and I basically created a timeline of my life um, to as, you know, early as I can remember. And for every bad thing that I remembered experiencing, uh, whether that was traumatic um, whether that was a moment of shame, whatever that may be, for every negative experience, I also had to tag three positive experiences around that same time. Um, and then after I had written it out all the way, I actually would you know lay down on the couch and my counselor would read every single um, moment in my life that I had written down, both the good and the bad. Um, and from what Corey Holmgren had explained to me is by doing that, it's allowing my brain to realize this happened, you know, for example, you know, being teased about my girlfriend happened in, you know, 1998, whatever that year was. Um, but also having my brain realize, okay, this was something that was negative, but there is still a lot of even more so positivity. Um, and then, we would, before this, like the session, we would focus on, okay, what traumatic experience did I want to focus on? So he would read through that three times, an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and then he would go to the specific moment, um, which I would have been in seventh grade. I, I would probably assume probably 12 years old. So he would tell me, okay, you know, I want you to imagine your 12-year-old self. I want you to sit down with this 12-year-old self that you have. And tell him that he that you love him, and that he helped you um, to be stronger and to be a better person, 
and to be the person that you are today and that you're going to take care of him. And then he told me that I had to think of a place that was special to me, somewhere that I have always felt safe. And for me, it was uh, Bear Canyon because my family would always go on camping trips uh, just up Nephi Canyon. And um, I remember kind of feeling, you know, that love that I was giving my myself, you know, this 12-year-old self that, you know what, thank you, but I don't need your pain anymore, um, for lack of a better word. You know, you've helped me to have this pain to learn from these experiences, but you can be at peace now. And so he would have me, you know, vis- you know, with my eyes closed, visualize me taking this younger self, um, my younger self to Bear Canyon and told him this is a safe place where no one will hurt you, that you'll be okay. And, um, to let that trauma just dissipate. That was gold. That was great. What a tribute to your therapist. I think he's passed away. Yes, he has. But what he taught you just taught a bunch of people a really helpful thing. It's a great spirit as you shared that. That was just golden. It's helpful for me personally. Um, talk about um, you're pretty opus, open with pornography. Why be open with that? You know, just like with suicide, um, suicide, suicidal thoughts, depression, and pornography are a lot of um, in the, the same as far as they don't like friends. They like to be alone. They like to have you to themselves. And the more that you talk with people destroys the lies that they put in your mind and starts to break down the chains that they have on you. Um, because they know, or Satan, you know, his, his uh, demons, they, they know that you are important. They know that a lot of people love you. But if they can keep you and walk you blindly, they know that they can, you know, eventually get you to, you know, take your own life or to continue to indulge yourself in nothingness of an addiction. And by talking to people, it really allows you to get out of your mind, get out of the lies that are constantly polluting um, and to allow that positivity and, you know, just like you know, in the, in the scriptures, you know, darkness and light can't reside in the same space. And, you know, once you light just that flicker of light, um, it, it can literally make a big difference in the thought process and going back to, you know, having people to, that you can trust and love to help, you know, give you those positive affirmations of the type of person that you are and what they see in you. Um, I love this phrase you used, repair my brain as I fight the addiction. Um, I love that because there's no shame in that. It's not excusing pornography, but instead of saying my soul is broken or some of the language you used in your suicidal stage, repairing my brain um, to me is a very thoughtful way to describe someone who's trying to solve pornography. Just talk more about that. Yeah. So something, so Lifestar in Sandy is actually where I um, went to 
uh, for um, group therapy and all the different therapies that I had. And something that they actually talk about is, um, and usually uh, if, if you can, there's a group therapy that you'll go with either your, you know, your, your wife or your husband, spouse, significant other, girlfriend, um, or even a parent. If you know you are maybe with you don't have a spouse or you somebody that you trust to go with you, and they have us sit down. They have a uh, PowerPoint. And they actually show us a picture of a brain, and. <clears throat> And they show the activity of what's going on in, in a normal person's brain, or I shouldn't say normal, but somebody that is without an addiction. Um, and that the specifically the frontal lobe actually has a lot of uh, light or activity going on. And then they actually showed a picture of a addict specifically to pornography uh, that had been, you know, using it for, you know, a certain amount of years or so. And it is a, very depressing like visual to see how much of your frontal lobe is not active and um to my understanding uh the frontal lobe is what deals with your decision making and um kind of plays a role into for example myself when i would um you know relapse or uh look at pornography my wife or you know other people would say why why did you look at that why why didn't you think like what were you thinking why didn't you just stop? And I mean, for me, a lot of times before this, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I just, it just happens. Like I just, I don't, my brake system is just out of whack. And by having this visual and understanding, I'm not, you know, I don't want anybody to use this as an excuse, but rather to understand um, those that either, you know, the spouse of, or loved one that is trying to help somebody, you know, with this addiction or, um, and also the person that the addict, um, or the person with the addiction rather, um, that, you know, this is causing actual physical damage to your frontal lobe and, you know, but it can be recovered. And that was something that they talked about is, you know, with the lessened amount of pornography, um, that you view your brain will actually heal itself, which unlike most other addictions, that's unfortunately not the case. I love that. And we're learning so much more about how to help people um, work through pornography and our vocabularies are better. Um, our understanding of what's going on here. Um, we've done a lot of podcast listeners. If you want to scroll back, you'll see many on this. I've wrote, written an Ensign article in the October Ensign. Um, we call it's um, seven tips for overcoming pornography use. You could, I'll link to that in the podcast description. But one of the things I felt is this word shame. We, you added the word toxic shame. Talk about toxic shame. Yeah. So for me, from my understanding, you know, shame is something that actually can help you to change something. Um, and to want to push you to be better. Whereas toxic shame um, is the point where it becomes unhealthy. It's the point where at that point you now identify yourself as either, you know, worthless or I am now, you know, this porn addict or I am, uh, whatever it may be that, um, trying to think of a good word for this, but, um, it's what actually 
causes you to continue to indulge in, you know, the, the behaviors that you're wanting or that you're going into. Um, and so basically summed up again. So shame is healthy, whereas toxic shame is a very unhealthy and it actually is what becomes destructive. I like that. And I use slightly different vocabulary. And just so our listeners are aware of what I've used, I've used guilt and shame. And I've used guilt as actually a positive thing, like your version of shame in the sense it points us forward and full of hope. And I've used shame as something like you're using toxic shame that is not from God. It is not positive. It keeps us sort of in this whirlpool of self-loathing. And I've always felt one of Satan's greatest tools is he knew we were all going to sin. So I think when Satan particularly wins is when you can keep it, you in toxic shame and just this, and he reprograms your brain to feel like you're worthless. Some of the vocabulary you use leading up to your feelings of suicide. And I think one of his greatest lies is to think you're outside of God's love and you've gone so far or you've relapsed so many times, or this has become so core to you that, that God you're outside of his ability to help you and somehow you've got to solve this on your own and then God will help you. Uh, are you okay with that or anything to add to that? No, I think that's perfect. Um, talk about, um, do you have advice for guys, single guys that are working to solve pornography and what they should or shouldn't, should they, or should they not talk to their girlfriend? And if they should, at what stage should they sort of open up about this? So that can be tricky, but it can also be simple. Um, obviously, it takes a lot of courage to have to tell somebody, especially somebody that you love, um, that you have a pornography addiction. Um, for myself, I had told... Um, my wife at the time, or <laughs> my wife at the time, we were just dating. We weren't engaged to to what I remember um, that that I had this addiction, but that I was working with the bishop and that I was wanting to move forward um, with my progression to overcome my addiction. And I think um, from what Autumn has said, or as she has talked to other you know wives after me posting this, is you know women are smart. They know your intentions and they can really see if, you know, if you do have that desire to change. Um, and I know that that's what my wife had seen in me. Um, and, you know, I, I've heard of, you know, different stories, unfortunately, of, you know, that husbands or boyfriends just want their girlfriends to accept the fact that this is just part of who they are and that they're just going to have to deal with the fact that they have a pornography addiction. And, um, you know, and if I could have any advice, you know, if you can get this cleaned up as much as you can before getting married, um, you'll be all the better. But I also believe that for me, I actually needed my wife to and my children to overcome this. And that was a path that God, you know, took me on. Um, and I think making sure you make it a matter of prayer. Um, really think about where you are in your relationship. Um, do you see yourself 
you know, wanting and, you know, marrying, or if you've talked of engagement, I'd probably say that's a, a good indicator that you should probably mention it. Um, but also know that not every woman will take it the right way, um, or will be okay with that. And, um, but know that if that is the case, God has a plan in everything and just to have faith in him. That's what I would say. I just second that advice. Um, Tate, that's where I've felt. I felt that, you know, if you're dating man or woman with the pornography challenge, I hate to use the word addiction very quickly. So I haven't used that word, even though you're mm -hmm. using, it. we could come back to that. Um, viewing pornography or pornography use as part of your life. I think the best thing to do is to talk to somebody pre-engagement. And I love your teaching about personal revelation, that if you're the one with pornography use to seek personal revelation and prayer on what the right time to talk about that is. And I think whoever you're dating needs to then seek personal revelation through prayer, prayer of the right thing to do in the relationship. I don't believe there's a standard answer here for every couple. Um, your wife, as she became aware of that pre-marriage, felt like that was something that was not a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. um, but some women may rightly so feel that's not part of, um, that is a piece of information that gives them a re personal revelation to end the relationship. And so I've always felt comfortable with both. But I think we need to honor personal revelation, and I and I think we need to talk about it like you did. It takes a lot of courage because it could end a relationship. You had a difficult experience with somebody finding your phone, and that ended your relationship. That's some unwind trauma, mm -hmm. perhaps, because that's a difficult experience to have that kind of personal space violated, and then other people be aware of your private conversations with the bishop. Um, listeners, I've shared this in a Facebook post and on the podcast that, you know, I told some of the YSAs that, you know, if they were asking YSAs working to solve porn, I told them that if they were asking for my daughter's hand in marriage, knowing everything I know about them, including their porn use, I would grant it. And I, in the back of my mind, knew some YSAs that weren't having, didn't have a porn challenge that if they were asking for my daughter's hand in marriage, I wouldn't grant it. And my point is, I wouldn't have a binary answer there. Um, some of the very best men, in my experience, were working through to solve porn. And, and it was not sort of an insight into their core character, whether if they had a porn challenge or not. And that just came to me over time after I just met with hundreds and hundreds. And I recognize... Um, often it's like, Tate, it wasn't an intent to, okay, I'm going to be evil. I'm going to turn against Heavenly Father. I am going to do that by looking at porn. That's what I'm going to do. And it, most of the time, it's the bottom of the iceberg for me principle that a therapist taught me is if I just, what I'm seeing is pornography use in somebody I care about or had priesthood responsibility for as a parent. But sometimes I have to set the pornography use aside and not define a relationship by that. But try to figure out what's going on. Often there's trauma down there. Often there's a coping mechanism. Often it comes innocently into your life. And if I demonize, that's why I love your bishop, minor, because I don't think he did anything to create additional shame or demonize you. And he recognized that part of your path for healing was to feel God's love. And if he could share that with you, then maybe you felt that about yourself and felt your heavenly parents felt that about you. But I just looked 
you know, I think part of solving porn use is sort of understanding the bottom of the iceberg and what it's really going on there. And as I, as I did that with the YSAs, and often it was the therapist that fully got to the bottom, we recognized this is very little, it's a sin, but it's very little about wanting to turn your back on God or hurt yourself or others. It's a coping mechanism, a way to escape loneliness, a way to deal with stress and anxiety, a way to deal with the trauma of the things you're experiencing. And it can come into an addiction as it becomes a coping mechanism. And that's why I love your repairing my brain. Um, are you okay with that? Anything to add or clarify? Just to add on to what you had said, um, because I agree with it, uh, as far as you know, separating the, the addiction or the challenge of viewing pornography, pornography from the person, um, because at Lifestar, something that they would state a lot is pornography isn't the problem here. The problem is the inability to manage emotions, stresses, and anxieties, depressions, whatever that may be. But pornography is just, as you mentioned, the coping mechanism, just like if somebody is you know, depressed or for whatever reason may turn to alcohol. That's gold, what you just said. Um because that's, I would never received much training on that, but that's kind of where I netted out on this. And I recognize local priesthood leaders may be listening and what you're sharing is very helpful. And none of us are excusing pornography here. Um, we both recognize it can be very destructive and you've seen that firsthand. Um, but I think understanding the totality of the situation and having healthy and improving the messaging around this um, as we talk about people Talk about why you use the um, addiction. Is that accurate for you? Would you encourage, how did you decide this is an addiction and that's appropriate for you? Um, probably for me, uh, the point that I had kind of put myself as an addict was where in my addiction, I felt like I couldn't go a day without it. I just felt like, you know, the crave was just very high. Um, and yes, as you mentioned, and I'm not in any way as well, I'm saying that pornography is not a problem. It obviously is. Um, but because of my inability to deal with the different stresses that I was having, I felt like I wanted to escape those pains. And I felt like that was what I relied on. And for me, that was um, when I felt addicted to it. Um, but also I do like how you say pornography challenge, you know, trying to separate the addiction from the person, um, because it can be in a sense, kind of a, you know, demeaning or a uh, hard way of somebody to think like I'm an addict and that means that I can't be helped. I love that. And, um, I've, I don't want to repeat stories for those of you that reg regularly listen, but one night in the bishop's office, and I've been released several years, I just pulled it up an empty chair, <laughs> and it was Heavenly Father. And I just said, Heavenly Father, did you know it would be so hard for these wonderful YSAs that are working to solve porn? Um, I almost was thinking you've miscalibrated here. <laughs> you've made it too accessible, or you've wired them so much, and there's so much stress and anxiety, and he... I just had a personal, you know, I just, and he just said, I have not sent them here to fail. And he said, I've just like the world's been flooded with pornography. I'm flooding the earth with temples to help them. And I found that 
not necessarily automatically restricting temple attendance for somebody working to solve porn was the right thing to do. I found that every situation was different. If I had somebody that was doing all they could, like you're talking about, going to the addiction recovery classes, doing all the hard work, even if they were still acting out, often I felt impressed if they also felt that the temple would be helpful for them. Um, but in some situations, the YSA would felt restricting temple would actually be a motivation for them. So I found it was really important not to have a firm rule there. There's nothing in the handbook that gave me a firm rule. And I found that we would counsel together and often understand would the temple be helpful or not. But the other piece of revelation that came into my mind was um, good women and good people will come in their lives to help them. And I don't want to put this on women to solve men's pornography problem, but I do recognize that often a teamwork working together like you and your wife and even you and your children, and even your feeling that that would be part of your road to recovery, not that they're here just to help you recover, but your responsibility as a husband and father would give you more tools to just sort of move through that. Um, the other thing that came to my mind is that this is peaking with your generation. I'm 60. I'm wired just the same way you were at 20. <laughs> I had no access. <laughs> and so the odds that I'm going to get addicted at nine is just zero. <laughs> and so you have, you're the first generation dealing with 24-7 access. And your kids won't have any more access than you have. But you will be the first parents that know this road firsthand. And sometimes I've seen some of these women recognize that a good man like you that's walked this road will have wonderful tools to help their sons and daughters um, navigate this in a way that you didn't have. No fault of your father. I'm the same way. I didn't have many tools to help my own sons navigate this. And that's why I, I believe this is peaking, because you will become the future leaders, the future parents. And you're bravely stepping forward and sharing your stories to de-shame. And I think that's where Satan loses, to be honest, is when you're brave enough to step forward and share your story and de-shame this so we can talk about it and solve it and work together. So those are just some of my feelings as I've felt some personal revelation about this. And it fills me with hope for the future. And you kind of represent that hope when I read your Facebook posts and hear you on the podcast and, and hear the things you've learned. I... I mean, I think some of your paydays are going to be when your kids just know you're safe to talk to. They may never have a pornography challenge, but there's something about you and your wife that will create a family environment because you're vulnerable that they will say mom and dad are safe to talk to and they can handle complex stuff. And we need parents that kids can go to with complex stuff. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the things that I think is happening that's really good. Any thoughts on any of that? No, I, I agree with that 100% because, you know, thinking back, you know, on, in my post when I had mentioned, you know, I don't even think my dad really knew what to do. I'm that same age, I assume. I'm 60. Your dad's probably about my age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I still remember, um, and if anything, this is all just, you know, expressions of, of the love that my parents did have and what they wanted to help. But I remember, you know, my dad coming across, um, you know, something that I had probably printed off or something like that and, or some type of pornographic material. And, um, unfortunately one of my sisters had sisters had come across it, um, and took it to my dad, but he had, uh, pulled me aside, told me that he loved me. Um, and then he also just said, okay, we're just going to move forward with this. Um, and I remember him putting it in a, 
in like a metal can and burning it. And, you know, for my loving dad thought that, you know, that would be, you know, good for the moment. And, you know, that would kind of go away. And I, and I agree that, you know, because of the inability to have the access that we have today, didn't quite have, he didn't quite have the understanding of, of that. Um, and I, you know, I worry a lot about my, my children and, you know, the access that they have. And, and I think that's something that is definitely key is always being aware of, you know, the different, um, you know, tablets, uh, phones, any type of smart device that has access to internet, um, gaming consoles, uh, to really be aware of what your children are, are doing, um, and viewing. I know that obviously a lot of children will probably say, Oh, you know, get out of my life. It's, it, you know, it's, you don't get nosy, but you know, I'd rather my kid think that I'm nosy. And if I end up finding out that they do have some form of addiction, you know, that I can help them. That's well worth it to me. So. Um, talk about, um, your call to your mother. Um, I believe moms kind of have personal revelation in spades for their kids. Um, just talk about what she, how that you've wrote, written about, I just love to hear more of what she sensed was different and what made it so that you actually opened up to her when you didn't want to. You know, something about my mom is <laughs> she and I are very similar. Um, and I think something that definitely helped with my mom is the different challenges that I, you know, would talk to her about, or she always knew, you know, when I wasn't being truthful, um, or if I wasn't, uh, saying everything that I was feeling. And, um, I think, and I'm forever grateful to Heavenly Father for the intuition that mothers have. And, um, you know, the fact that she, could tell in my voice, in my emotion, probably the words that I used, you know, because in my mind, I'm, it's almost like my brain is being held hostage. And I was trying to give some type of code of, I need help. Um, and that's the only thing that I can think of, you know, because Satan or my addiction wanted me just to say, or, you know, if they didn't want me to say anything, but they wanted to make sure I didn't divulge that they were in control. But I think by me just saying, I just want to tell you that I loved you because in any other instance, I would just have told my mom, Hey, I love you. You know, I'm, you know, super glad I could talk with you. And, but the fact that I said, I just want you to know that I love you. That right there should be a big red flag of, well, okay, well, I, I know you love me, but why are you saying it that way, you know, and catching on to that cue? And I hadn't really thought of that until actually you've, you know, kind of brought this out. And I actually really love that. Um, and just the love, you know, that she has for me and, and, you know, wanting to make sure that, you know, are you okay? And not, as I mentioned, you can, people say all the time, oh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good okay, well, how are you really, you know? And, um, you know, usually if someone, you know, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm fine. Try to dig deeper into that like my mom did because if she hadn't, I very well could be 
you know, I'm, I'm certain that I would be six feet underground. And, um, so that's, that's why I'd say. I love that intuition. And I'm sensitive. We've had mothers on the podcast that have lost children to suicide and I don't, neither Tater, I want them to feel like they did something in their situation. Your mom did something that if they had done, it would have been a different outcome. Um, those moms I've had on the podcast generally knew they had suicidal children and been working through this for a while. That's still devastating, but I love a mom's intuition is often very helpful. Why did your mom tell you to go talk to your wife and not just come home? Um, Have you ever asked her that? Cause it's interesting. She said you, she didn't, a mama heart would some, and knowing a son's in a bad spot would say, come home. I'll take care of you. But she actually sent you to your wife. And I don't know if geographically that was just impractical, but any thoughts on that? Um, as far as geographically, yeah, because she lived up in Kiesel about an hour away. But I, I definitely know that she probably would have wanted to say that. But I think she also understood um, the trust that I also had with with Autumn and the challenges that we were going through at the time. And her wanting me to make sure that Autumn was aware um, of what was going on, because maybe if you know she told me just to come up there, and maybe I, uh, you know, oh, I feel fine. I'm not going to bother Autumn because that's probably what would have happened. Is oh, I don't, I don't want to trouble Autumn with that. But then that would have just given, you know, my addiction or my uh, kick the ball depression. down the road. Exactly. Yeah. I thought that was a very insightful thing. Now that you answered that that actually was the right thing to do. And even though it, it was the path, you know, autumn needed to be there. And now that you were safe, um, safer, and that you two could work this through together and confront it kind of head on in that messy, awkward. And I just, I liked the way you just gave her the suicide note. I thought that was appropriate way just to let her know where you were. Maybe it was easier to let her read that versus articulate. And then that led to the needed conversations that have been the path to healing. Listeners, as I read about suicide, I read one of the, you know, one of the models I read, and I can't quite remember. Um, I think it's Joyner, but it talks about these things, these three circles, and one of them is your burden. And maybe another one or the same one is the world would be better off without you. And another one is um, just the ability to acquire lethal means and be comfortable with using lethal means. And so um, I don't want to talk too much about the third one, but you've really talked about these others, that these false lies that come into your head, that everybody would be better off. And the only, the best way I know to dispel that is, is people, their older selves talking to their younger selves. Um, and you've done that. I just, if you are where Tate was, please look at where Tate is now. And our invitation is you can get to where Tate is. And it will take some work. But the you t- tell the name of your son that keeps coming to your mind. I, it starts with a K. Uh, Kazer. Everybody has a Kazer in their life. It may be your children. It may be your brother or sister. It may be a friend. It has somebody that loves you and cares about you and needs you. And so part of um, Tate's story is recognizing that all these people really love him and need him. And all the joy of three children and a wife and a family that is better off with you here. I think all of your older selves, if they could talk to you right now, 
um, in your darkest moments would say it gets better. Even if you feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there's not even any hope, just hang on to the idea that your older self would be glad you stayed and would give you really good reasons why life has gotten better. One of the quotes I read a lot on the podcast, you're familiar with it, regular listeners, is The Wounded Healer. And it's by Henry Norwin. It says, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to be think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So you know some real deserts, just brutal, brutal deserts. But as your post talks about, one of the blessings that comes into your life because you know these deserts is you can authentically lead people out of these deserts. It's a great gift. And that's why your Facebook post is helping so many people. And this podcast will reach ten to 15,000 people. And uh, if you start a podcast or however you feel impressed to continue to talk about this, people need you to talk about this. And I think... Um, you're taking really difficult things and now using them to help other people out of the similar desert. But there's something about being in that desert, Tate, that allows you to authentically walk people out. And somehow our Savior knows all these deserts. He doesn't, he hasn't been there in scriptural, but I love the idea that he descended below all things. And that gives me hope that he understands my desert, even if I'm not sure anybody else does at times, and your desert and everybody's desert. But um, we need other people to walk with us to help us out of these deserts. And that's what you're doing. And I think some of your downstream paydays are with your own kids and with their friends as you have teenagers and them in your home and your role with young men in the church. Um, and just in other ways that you'll just continue to be a safe person that people just know they can talk to you about what's going on in their life. And that's one of the greatest gifts that you will have is that people know you're safe because of this kind of a post and what you continue to do. And we need to do that culturally in the church because we have kind of this toxic, not at times toxic perfectionism, but we kind of have this appearance we need to give people. And sometimes the appearance versus the reality of our lives create a lot of a stress and dissonance, and it's really painful. But if we can be our authentic selves and present ourselves authentically in our congregations, then I think we heal each other through our vulnerabilities. Just a comment on suicide listeners. Um, I did a podcast with a ward friend of mine, Joe Kramer. He's a noted physician here in Salt Lake. He's battled depression. He's been our pediatrician. And he was very suicidal. And he was on, honest in the podcast. And he, I asked him what finally caused him not to choose suicide. It was a fascinating answer from an adult in his 60s with adult children. He says, I worry I would teach my children how to solve their own problems. And it was a it was a very helpful insight that his analytical mind kicked in enough to pull him out of the darkness of that. And it's probably true. <laughs> so that's all I'm going to say. I'm gonna, just going to turn it back to you, Tate, for anything else you'd like to share. And give your email address in closing, too. All right. Probably the last experience that uh, has come to my mind is... Uh, an experience that I had when I was just pushing pushing my uh, second son Jackson on a swing um, up in a room in my parents' house, just one that hangs from the ceiling. And um, my sister had a little uh, karaoke machine. She had a CD in it. It was playing some different songs. And um, one that actually came on was uh, You Lift Me Up by Josh Groban. 
And that was the song that I would listen to when I didn't feel that I was enough. And the moments that I wish that I didn't exist and the moments that I, um, you know, had those dark moments and seeing and, and pushing my son at that moment, the one, uh, and this was my son that was my wife was pregnant with at the time that I, you know, thought that I needed to take my life and thought to myself, I would have missed out on this specific opportunity as well as many other opportunities, you know, with Jackson, Kayser and with, with Avery and, um, to know that there are so many people that love me and that love, you know, all of you listeners that are currently struggling and that there are people that will be in your future that need you just as much as you need certain people today in your life. And to please just um, speak up, try to talk to somebody. Um, even if just saying, I'm, I'm just having a hard time. Um, because I know sometimes if you can just open the door just to crack, it's a lot easier to open it even more. Um, I know that God, Jesus Christ, love each and every one of you um, and that you are worth it. That's great. And give your email out. Uh, yeah. And my uh, email that I have is waves, W-A-V-E-S of O-F awareness, A-W-A-R-E-N-E-S-S at outlook.com. Um, thank you listeners um, for joining us for another episode that we don't take contributions here, but we appreciate you rating the podcast wherever you listen. That does help us. And this is uh, my friend Tate LeBaron and Richard Osser signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.